Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. School of Humans. Are you guys ready for an extremely hot, spicy take? Okay, here we go. If United States military history shows us anything, it's that generals really think that men cannot control their wieners. We've seen it. In Nashville, during the Civil War, the generals tried to remove all the sex workers because the soldiers wouldn't stop visiting the brothels and getting gonorrhea and syphilis. Like, heaven forbid, you just forbade your soldiers from visiting the brothels instead of removing women from their homes and making them float on a boat for 13 days. And then again, we saw it in Newport, Rhode Island, with all the gay sex. The government was like, we gotta implement some new rules to prevent all these sins from occurring. So they were like, yeah, if you live within 10 miles of a naval base, you can't do anything that would corrupt the sailors, right? And that rule that happened in Newport, that was actually implemented at military bases all over the country during World War I. In this episode, we're talking about another place where these rules messed up people's lives, okay? Messed up people's lives, they were having a good time. But then they're like, but we got the Navy here now. So no more fun. So yeah, we're going down to New Orleans, baby. Down to Storyville. This is American Filth. I'm Gabby Watts. Every week I tell you a filthy story from American history. This week's episode, Farewell to Storyville.
So we're in New Orleans at the turn of the century, 1907 or so, on Basin Street, one of the very first sanctioned red light districts in the United States. And the city is alive with sin and pleasure. Jazz music is being born, and almost every other building on this street is a brothel, a sex house, a house of ill repute. The name of this neighborhood is Storyville, named after the municipal council member Sidney Story, who wrote the legislation allowing this district to exist. And if you can believe it, he actually did not appreciate the nickname. He tried to get the district to catch on, but whoops, everyone's like, we're calling it Storyville. And Storyville was officially sanctioned starting in 1897. And Obviously, the legislation was less like, hey, yeah, it's fine to have prostitutes. It was more like, if we have prostitutes and sex work, you got to be in this one specific place. Here's what Sydney Story's legislation said. From the 1st of October, 1897, it shall be unlawful for any public prostitute or woman notoriously abandoned to lewdness to occupy, inhabit, live, or sleep in any house, room, or closet without the following limits. South side of Custom House... From Basin to Robertson Streets, east of Robertson Street from Custom House to St. Louis Street, from Robertson to Basin Street. So that's where everybody went. They're like, lit. We'll go there. That sounds fine. And the thing is, unlike a lot of brothels at the time, if you went on Basin Street, for example, the street was known for its well-kept houses. On this wide, grand street lined with vibrant, jewel-toned brownstones stood Mahogany Hall, an elegant, classy joint with 23 rooms, one of which was said to be lined with mirrors. Ooh, scandalous. It was the most renowned brothel in town. Louis Armstrong wrote the song The Mahogany Hall Stomp in reference to this enchanted place. And there was a lot that set Mahogany Hall apart from the other brothels. For one thing, it wasn't segregated. It was an interracial brothel. Back then, they made these things called blue books that would display all of the women who were available at the various brothels. And for Mahogany Hall, you had pictures of white women, black women, mixed women. There's also a handful of photographs that have survived of Mahogany Hall. They depict large chandeliers and tons of super fancy couches and chairs. You know, the kind with wings and ornate wooden carvings and brightly colored upholstery. Practically Victorian. There are even these Tiffany stained glass windows at Mahogany Hall and apparently highly sought after oil paintings. And get this, they also had potted plants. Wow, how cool. The place was decked out with ferns, actually. You might even say it was well furnished. And in the photographs draped over the expansive staircase, it was lined with women, dripping in silky dresses and smoking long cigarettes. But what really set this place apart from the others was the woman in charge, Lulu White. She was a powerful, elegant, and glamorous young mixed-race woman. And the success of Mahogany Hall was all her doing. It made her one of the only black millionaires at the beginning of the 20th century. She had the largest jewelry collection in the Southeast, and in light of this, she earned the moniker the Diamond Queen. 
She often wore a red wig topped with a sparkling tiara, flowing dresses with lots of cleavage, diamond rings on every finger, necklaces and bracelets that she stacked almost up to her elbow. But of course, when you Google her, the main image that pops up is her mugshot. So there's not that many records that exist about Lulu, and there's a lot of conflicting information. Some people say that she was born in Selma, Alabama on a farm in 1868. Other people think maybe she was born a bit earlier, maybe during the Civil War. But Lulu White herself claimed that she was an immigrant from the West Indies. She preferred the exotic street cred that this gave her. It also made her very mysterious and aligned her with the large Creole population in New Orleans. Some of her clients thought she was from Jamaica, while others swore she was from Cuba. But most likely she did grow up in Selma, Alabama during the Reconstruction period in the wake of the Civil War. And obviously she probably had a pretty difficult childhood. Because even though, you know, Reconstruction was meant to integrate all the newly freed black people, it didn't really work, did it? It also didn't last very long. During the time, racially motivated violence was rampant and largely unreported, especially in the more rural parts of the South. And historians have posited that it's likely because of this climate that Lulu White, whose birth name was Lulu Henley, ended up fleeing to the larger, more bustling city of New Orleans. Her criminal record suggests that she was involved in some petty theft and other misdemeanors in New Orleans as early as the 1880s, when she would have just been a teenager. It's rumored that she started making real money posing for risque photographs that made their rounds at the secret brothels around New Orleans, the ones that were operating before the infamous Storyville was established. And it's not exactly clear how she managed to earn enough money to open Mahogany Hall. But one theory is that she boarded a paddle boat on the Mississippi River, presumably on her way out of Alabama to New Orleans, and met a rich old white guy. She offered him sex and companionship, and he accepted. Then he fell in love. This guy would get so drunk each night and fill her pockets with gold. So by the time she got off the boat, she had raised enough money to open up her own brothel. But again, this is just a rumor. It's a legend. Maybe something she created. Also, it's probably not fair to chalk up all her hard work to just one white sugar daddy. I mean, it's also possible that she just worked her ass off and also did some other criminal activity to get all that money. But however she made her money, she made it right on time. Because that was when New Orleans was about to have its own government-sanctioned red light district. And Lulu was perfectly poised to open her own brothel that would break down racial barriers. So you might be thinking, uh, why would people in government want there to be a sex work district? Well, Sydney Story and others who supported this nationwide effort to create urban districts for sex work claim that it served the community in a variety of ways. You know, one reason he wanted to push all of the sex work to one district was so that they could reclaim this commercial real estate where they were already operating. Because a lot of brothels were operating out of large, beautiful houses, and if they were all sent to Storyville, those houses could be repurposed for neighborhood beautification. Another reason to support this movement was that it also removed prostitution from the sight of the more respectable women. So, you know, their pure sensibilities would not be tarnished. And then also they would not think, hmm, maybe I should do that. 
And the last argument Sydney's story made for this district being a good idea was that it provided protection for the workers. Protection from prosecution and violence. Wow, we actually cared about them. Crazy. Unfortunately, these officials were a bit naive to think that the corrupt police and money-hungry landlords would not continue their seedy behavior. Secret brothels and sex trafficking very much continue to operate outside the boundaries of Storyville, and the police largely turned a blind eye, since Storyville's very existence made it uh, less of a big deal. Anyway, blah, 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 the government. Let's get back to Lulu White and Mahogany Hall. Historians think that Mahogany Hall was built in the 1890s, around the time that Storyville became a thing in 1897, and it probably cost around $40,000 to build, which, yeah, that's a lot of money. By today's standards, that would be about $1.3 million. And Lulu took pride in the fact that her establishment provided more than just sex and beautiful women. It's also credited as a huge contributor to the growing genre that is now American jazz. Guests came there to be entertained on every one of its four stories. Musicians like Jelly Roll Morton would show up and play, and Joe King Oliver, who was Louis Armstrong's mentor. Dancers would perform. There was just spectacle everywhere you looked. Lulu also had some other successful businesses in Storyville. One was called Lulu's Saloon, the remnants of which still stand. And the thing is, for a time, Lulu White was as affluent as many of the white men she serviced. In a souvenir guide that she wrote and published herself about Mahogany Hall, there's a photo and a bio. And some people think the photo isn't even a photo of her. Some people think maybe it was another sex worker who worked at Mahogany Hall. Just to increase her mysteriousness, she's like, "Mm, you don't even know what I look like. But in the bio, it says, having been fortunately gifted with an education, it did not take her long to figure out what the other sex was in search of. But unfortunately, her success in Storyville, like Storyville itself, wouldn't last. Be back after these soothing advertisements. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. 
Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Alas, the Storyville era started to dwindle in 1917 for a number of reasons, uh, one of which was white women complaining. I mean, people were complaining about Storyville since it became a thing. But in 1917, their complaints finally got through and the city's moralists decided to act. The commissioner of public safety, Harold Newman, launched a massive cleanup campaign, shutting down dozens of illegal brothels and creating arbitrary restrictions to make it difficult for any brothels to remain open. Like, for example, banning the crib system, which is basically where you can rent out a room for a short period of time, you know, from like a night to a few hours. Basically, what he did, he was like, uh, women who do sex work have to live in the places they work at. He pulled a bunch of other bullshit like this, but none of it was really sticking because everyone was like, fuck you, Newman. Why are you trying to do this? I'm not going to listen to you. But then finally, in February of 1917, he tried segregation as a tactic. After all, Jim Crow laws were taking hold nationwide. Newman basically told non-white people who were involved in sex work that they had until the end of February to find housing in another vice district across Canal Street from Storyville. And that's when Lulu White was like, fuck you, we're not going to do that. She filed an injunction against the city almost immediately, claiming that this prevented her from accessing the property that she owned and without due process of the law. The injunction also cited this as an example of the arbitrary abuse of power by law enforcement, and it violated the Constitution by denying her the protection of her assets just because she was black. And surprisingly, you might think at first, the Louisiana Supreme Court ruled that this was indeed unconstitutional. But the city wasn't giving up. They soon filed another ordinance with the same goals, and Lulu adjusted her injunction slightly and resubmitted it. This time, over 20 other brothel owners followed suit, also filing against this ruling. And once again, the Supreme Court ruled in their favor. And the court was like, yeah, this is a straight-up violation of the 14th Amendment, which states that people have a right to live where they want. And at this point, because she led the charge, Lulu White was known as the Queen of the Demi-Monde. For the next month or two, that public safety commissioner, Newman, was pissed. He was like, I'm so mad. I guess you win, Lulu White, you scallywag. 
But then, unfortunately, World War I was happening. And in April of 1917, President Woodrow Wilson sounded the alarm that he needs soldiers to fight. He was like, guys, sign up. Volunteer to die for us. And most of the men in New Orleans were like, uh, no, thank you. Only 134 people enlisted. So a draft was issued, and military bases started opening up all over the place, and New Orleans was a major port. And that's when that 1917 law was passed for the military that eventually affected the Rhode Island Newport folks. Secretary of War Newton Baker ordered that cities suppress brothels from operating or opening anywhere close to a military station fort training camp by any means necessary. He said, these boys are going to France. I want them adequately armed and clothed by their government. But I want them to have an invisible armor to take with them, a moral and intellectual armor for their protection overseas. But despite this, Storyville remained. One reason was that the bases established in New Orleans were technically Navy, not military. So they kind of used that as a loophole at first. Even though, as we know from the Newport episode, eventually this too would come down to the Navy. But for now, the mayor himself, Mayor Martin Berman, fought to keep Storyville open, claiming that if they closed Storyville, that would spread brothels around the city and that would make them more appealing and more accessible to military men and prevent law enforcement from regulating their visits. He also said, quote, You can make it illegal, but you can't make it unpopular. But then he directly got a letter from the federal government being like, you got to close Storyville. And then he ignored it. So then what happened was there was this guy from the American Hygiene Association. He came down to New Orleans. His name was Bascom Johnson. And his official title was Major of the Sanitary Corps. When Mayor Martin Berman heard this, he was like, seriously, that's the dumbest title I've ever heard. I'm not listening to anything you say. But Major Johnson of the Sanitation Corps reported back to Washington that there were indeed sailors partaking of the naughty things in Storyville. In fact, in the early days of the U.S. entering the war, four sailors had died in the district within weeks of each other. The Mayor Berman was incredulous. He bought Storyville some more time by traveling all the way to Washington, D.C. to meet with the Secretary of War, Newton Baker. And when he got there, he was like, yo, Secretary of War, Newton Baker... I promise, I swear, that military men are not allowed into Storyville. We're making sure they don't get in. Plus, again, this is the Navy we're talking about. Not the military, so it's fine, technically. And at that point, the Secretary of War was like, you know what, Berman? You're totally right. And he allowed Storyville to stay open. But then, on October 6, 1917, Congress was like, uh, actually, we have decided that this sex law about brothels and military bases includes the Navy, too. Boo yeah, Berman. And then they sent him a note that says something like, close down Storyville or the U.S. military will do it for you. And so began the mass exodus from Storyville, Mahogany Hall included. During the exodus, jazz musicians took the streets, blaring, nearer my God to thee as women loaded up two-wheeled carts with all of their worldly possessions, making their way out of the neighborhood. The fancy, more wealthy madams had other people do that for them, but they trailed behind the procession with canaries in cages and cats on leashes. Many of the sex workers ended up in the French Quarter, but Lulu White was determined to fight for her livelihood. So as people were getting out of Storyville, 
she promptly opened another brothel and kept operating Lulu White's saloon. Unfortunately, this choice to keep operating brothels landed her in prison. She had been no stranger to the law, and her lawyers could no longer keep her out. Her rap sheet included stabbing with intent to murder. She was sentenced to one year and a day, but it looks like she only served three months due to some medical pardon. But when she got out, she went right back to it, opening another brothel. And then when Prohibition started in 1919, she changed her saloon over to a soft drinks bar. I mean, on paper. Because there's evidence that she got arrested for violating the Volstead Act, which banned the sale of alcohol. But the thing is, the age of Mahogany Hall was long over. While she was holding on to it, Storyville had already crumbled. She sold the building in 1929 to a business owner who used it for storage. And she was only able to sell the building for $11,000. And there is just as much, if not more, mystery surrounding Lulu White's death as there is about her birth and origin story. Most people think that she died in 1931 while awaiting trial for running a brothel too close to a military base, yet again. But... And a fun twist. One person claimed that they saw her in 1941, taking money out of a bank account in her name. And so, yeah, there's not much we know about Lulu White. Most of her life, there's a lot of conjecture. You know, there's not that much documentation about her. Uh, But it seems she also purposely tried to shroud herself in mystery. You know, women love to be mysterious. And as always, we learn a lesson from American Filth. And I think the lesson today is very obvious. That dudes, get control of your boners because you're preventing women from owning businesses. Duh. Anyway, guys, talk at you next time. American Filth is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcast. It's hosted by me, Gabby Watts. This episode was written by Julia Criscow. It was sound designed by Jesse Neiswanger. Our senior producer is Amelia Brock, and our executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Elsie Crowley, and Brandon Barr. If you like this episode or if you didn't like this episode, feel free to still give us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Say something hilarious. I read all the comments obsessively. You can also follow the pod on Instagram at American Filth Pod. Thanks. Bye. School of Humans. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages, they starved us, they beat us was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. 
Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.